call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Welcome to episode 21 of Call It Friend, or the podcast where two friends watch two films decided by the flip of a coin. This week, myself, Andy J. Ritchie, and my co-host, Donica Tiernan, watched two films starring Nicole Kidman, 2004's Birth and 2018's Destroyer. As always, this podcast contains spoilers for both films right from the start. Check out JustWatch.com for streaming and rental options in your region. If you'd like to recommend a film for us to watch, please send us an email at callitfriendopodcast at gmail.com. That's callitfriendopodcast at gmail.com. So what have you been watching this week? I have been digging into much more of The Shield, which I'm still loving. It's just great. Honestly, I think people should approach TV and all the vast stuff that's available for binging the way I do it. Because the last, like, I'm slowly rewatching The Shield over the course of a year. And the last time I watched a season of it was like four or five months ago, (laughs) you know? So like I it's I honestly I forget like how much I'm enjoying it and then once I go back to it it takes it, it's literally like TV used to be back in the day it takes me like an episode or two to get into the the thrust of it but then I'm like oh man I love the fucking shield it's great and I also rewatched last Monday I rewatched Uncut Gems which I still haven't seen I, it oh my god it's so good I know it's controversial but I will watch it like to be honest Watch it at a distance from me even saying it's so good because the first time I saw it, it was in the the, the jungle of just hyper praise the film was getting. And I couldn't enjoy it f- just for that. But watching it this time around, it really, really, really blew me away. I think it was, yeah, I, was, I, I ended up listening to a podcast that featured the Safdie brothers and Paul Thomas Anderson. And it was oh, just yeah, really I listened to a bit jam. of that as well. That was good. The A24 interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. Just re- it was just really enjoyable. And then I said, okay, I'm going to have to give that another go around. And yeah. I think that's on YouTube. And I'll stick it in the show notes. Also watched a couple of Italian uh, giallo horror movies, which are <laughs> they're the kind of thing that, I mean, if you're into the history of films, you, you definitely enjoy them. Or if you're just into a bit of crack, you would definitely enjoy them. But for anybody who, I don't know... <clears throat> has an eye to plot or anything like that italian horror movies of the 60s and 70s are just not for them why are they called giallo again i mean that's yellow yeah they're called giallo because so originally when agatha christie and um dashiell hammett like kind of schlocky paperbacks were released in italy they were with a yellow cover Ah, okay so giallo came to symbolize kind of schlocky entertainment essentially Mm. and it's really it's interesting because i think like this is all based off the fact that over Christmas, for the first time, I watched Friday the Thirteenth, and I just thought that's a mad movie. <laughs> the, have you seen Have you seen Friday the Thirteenth? Uh, a million years ago, but yeah, right. So I watched it, and then I thought to myself, because I'm so tuned into the way um, slasher films went on to work. Slasher films, in my experience, when they work best, are completely stripped bare. There's it doesn't matter the killer's motivation, for example. Right, but in Friday the 13th and it turns out it's his mother 
and yeah. not actually Jason mm-hmm. is doing the killing. Spoilers for Friday the 13th, folks. And then uh, I kind of thought, well, that's mad because nobody gives a shit. Nobody cares that it's his mother. What a, it, That's crazy. And then I read up that actually when John Carpenter released Halloween, that that was the big muscle move to just strip everything away. And that films like that, slasher films, originally, despite having the setup of, you know, just a series of gruesome deaths, also came tied up with these labyrinthine plots that were really difficult to follow. So that took me back to A Bay of Blood, which is the first Jello film I watched, which, again, loads of deaths and stuff, but it's all tied up in this mad plot about somebody trying to steal somebody's land or something like that. But anyway, it's like... So I've been kind of doing a back and forth between slashers and Jello movies. (laughs) Okay, solid. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's... The kind, it's interesting if you're interested. <laughs> put it like that. <laughs> and Ted Lasso. Been enjoying Ted Lasso too. What's that? What a, that is an Apple TV show starring... This is a poor reference point, but he's one of the guys from Horrible Bosses. <laughs> uh, Jason in, Sudeikis? Jason Sudeikis. <laughs> I'm guessing if that's the one you can't name, it's going to be him. All right. Well, yeah, so... Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, Jason Sudeikis plays a former American football coach who go, who um, gets hired to coach a Premier League team. Uh, oh, it's, I remember hearing about this. It's actually really good. Is it? Um, is, is it a comedy? Yeah, kind of. It kind of hits the same tone as Cobra Kai for me. Okay. In that, it feels like it's. I don't know. We've gotten so used to dealing with everything you know, adult themes. Like, you know, okay, you take something like Eastbound and Down, that's a story that in the 1990s would have been PG, but now it's just given this treatment of, you know, extra F-bombs and drugs and stuff yeah. like that. Uh, so we've gotten used to stories like the Ted Lasso story being told in that way with all extra F-bombs, etc. But this is told in a much more sort of a fr- family-friendly way, like Cobra Kai, for mm-hmm. example. And uh, it's, yeah, it's just really nice. It's really fun to watch. I quite enjoy that. Nice. Solid. And I have not kept up with WandaVision. What have you been watching? Uh, I haven't watched any other films or TV, but this morning I started watching a YouTube channel called Vickers Tactical. I'll post a link in the show notes. It's a former U.S. military tier one operator who does breakdowns of gunplay in films. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So I watched his videos on Collateral, No Country for Old Men and Sicario. And they're great. Wow. And he also has particularly great, great choice of films. Yeah, he has Heat, John Wick and The Way of the Gun as well. So definitely recommend checking it out. It's just it's kind of beat by beat through the main gun gunplay scenes in these films. And what does he do? Like, just basically tell you, do this, don't, yeah, do this, don't do this. This is good. The way that Tom Cruise executes the guys in the street. Which movies do not come off well? The only what I think he only really comments on things that have good gunplay i don't think he's doing ah, shit okay. films to be fair the majority of the channel is just gun related stuff <laughs> it's not actually but the guy who runs it larry has a series of these film of, of videos where he looks at films but um, a lot of the channel is just insane nra propaganda <laughs> it's just the, i like his film breakdowns I never had you down for a gun nod, Andy. Are you a gun nod? Well, I just, I think it, no. I think the, the film breakdowns are interesting, though. Have you ever shot a gun? No. I did there a couple of Christmases ago. It's great fun, but I, I haven't done it since. Where was that? Uh, in Madrid. It was actually a really interesting day. Myself and Belen 
got taken out. Like I happened to mention, I had to happen to mention at Aperitivo the day before that, oh, I'd love to shoot a gun. And then one of the people who's there, who was there, his father had loads of guns and was a regular hunter. So then we get, Belen gets this text message nice. later. Do you want to go shoot some guns tomorrow? So I was like, hell yeah. So we went around to this house and this house had just animal heads everywhere. We grabbed a bunch of guns and then we started driving. We drove out to a Duke's house in Toledo. Like a big, like, this is one, one, the coolest part about the whole day was, it's the difference between, like, old money and a mechanic who made it big in the 1990s and the two types of houses. Like, the mechanic's house will, I don't know, you, you know, it'll just be big and gaudy and loud, but, like, this guy's house was... It was just old and kind of tatty. But at the same time, if you looked closer at, at everything, you're like, oh, that's worth a lot of money. Yeah. You know, like old school. And like, yeah, he had his own wine that he served us up and stuff. And yeah, yeah it was just a really interesting, cool. fun day. What were the guns you yeah. were shooting? Just standard rifles. Nice. Um, we were shooting them off. A, I think, do you call it a gurney? Like I where have it's, no idea. It stood there for you. Like a... a which was fine and we all sh- we all hit the targets when we were able to aim off a stand but then um trying to aim off your shoulder is fucking yeah, difficult it's horrible recall i mean i've shot like i remember shooting air rifles when i was a kid and the even even the recoil of the air rifle hurting my hurting my shoulder all right then i suppose the first question i would have for you with regards to this week's movies is um when did you become aware of jonathan glazier well, that's. Uh, <laughs> I think I first became aware of Jonathan Glazer's work before I even knew who he was, because uh, I rewatched some of his adverts and music videos after watching Birth, and the ones that stick in my memory include the series of black and white Guinness ads that he did, like mm-hmm. Swim Black and Surfer, and uh, good, yeah. the Levi's Kung Fu ad, and. Although I detest Jamiroquai, Glazer's video for Virtual Insanity is one that's always stuck in my mind. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's great. He's, well, he's got yeah, great music videos. Yeah, Rabbit he did. in your headlights yeah. for Uncle stands that's, out. That's a um, solid one. Street uh, Spirit. Yeah, Street Spirit, Karma Place. He did the Universal for Blur. Oh, the one with the puppet. No, the one that's like set in a kind of Brave New World futuristic society. Ah, yes, 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 yes. Anyway... I think I became aware of his existence when, like, on the bus back from Dublin, having seen Under the Skin in order to write a review for it. And uh, I soon after watched Sexy Beast because I just thought, oh my God, this this is just this is a super charismatic filmmaker. And having now, so at last, over the course of many years, because I watched Sexy Beast soon afterwards, which was his first film, and having now completed the trilogy, I think my whole theory on Glazier stands up, is that I, I think he is just really interested in messing around. Messing around in with your... Well, I think with expectations. So mm. in in all all three movies, I think, like centered around... I mean, they, they have their own distinct visual senses each of them but i think what each of them does is does an experiment with your expectations and the main tool he uses is the performance of his uh, central actors and i think that's that's really what he's about obviously sexy beast just turns on on its head what your expectations of mm. a Ben Kingsley performance might be I think for sure that's what that movie is about essentially is the Ben Kingsley performance <clears throat> yeah even though I do remember it has a very 
the heist sequence is weird and ethereal and memorable and under the skin certainly for a film that's about an alien kidnapping young fellas in glasgow it is the most it's the oddest scariest darkest have you seen under the skin yeah i i I watched it uh, a few months ago probably about six months ago i watched it during lockdown but i think under the skin is interesting it's it's similar to birth in the way for Mm. me i put it off for such a long time i I really loved under the skin i think it gives the the audience very little to go on so you have to kind of trust glazer and trust the imagery and there's a lot of visual storytelling but yeah i thought it was great not least because one of the guys who gets pulped by scarlett johansson is a hibs fan which is quite funny he's he's wearing like he's wearing a hib strip and scarf which i think is hilarious well have you heard that when they were making that yeah. they, like a, people did not recognize scarlett johansson That's yeah it. they were it was all like hidden a lot of hidden camera stuff and then they got people to sign off on it later which is also funny i would struggle to think of a film that i found more disturbing on first viewing and probably second viewing i find it like i i think under the skin is really really disturbing film after Um, finishing birth i realized i was still thinking about under the skin and i don't think i'll ever i won't ever care enough about birth to think mm. about it in the same way this is true but leading into so the first film we want to talk about this week i think you would be hard pressed to call birth forgettable at the same time Mm. no yeah it's certainly different Okay, well, sure, here, we'll get around to it. So, Birth is the second film by Jonathan Glazer, which he was following, released in 2004 and following up four years later, Sexy Beast. Now, uh, do you think Sexy Beast was a big hit when it came out? I can, I remember. So, I saw Sexy Beast on VHS, <laughs> actually on VHS from, from a local video shop when I lived in Newcastle. And then about six months later, I watched it in the cinema in uh, California. So oh, that's, it was that's it, mad. it'd already been released in the UK and it hadn't really done that much. And then it picked up steam. I think a lot of actors and people like Hollywood types really, really loved the film. Not surprisingly, because it's great. But it's a great um, film, yeah. there was a kind of campaign and it, it, it uh, picked up a lot of steam. Ben Kingsley got an Oscar nomination. The film was released theatrically in the US and I think it did okay. Um, mm. And it's certainly like it raised Glazer's profile and it was clear that he could get a second film made, which turned out to be birth. You know, his his career would follow a, a similar trajectory in that regard. Just the beginnings of it now to some to people like David Fincher and um, Ridley Scott in that they just earned so much clout in the advertising world that they were really able to mess around ambitiously for their first films. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's what he ended up doing. And then only because you, we can see his complete career trajectory now, just three films in, apparently he's working on a, yeah, supposedly another something one. else coming up. A Marinamus adaptation yeah, for yeah, A24. Yeah. Which is but what's that zone could, of interest, which is a love story set in Auschwitz. You could not call birth a left turn but at the time it might have seen seemed like one actually no do you know what <laughs> even in terms of glazier's career it is just a it is a left turn but i think it's more of a left turn in terms of just films themselves because it is a really odd film i remember thinking at the time it was uh, a bold choice i hadn't seen it until <laughs> earlier this week 
But everything I read about the film in 2004, it felt like that kind of, you know, like, really, this is what you're going to do with uh, all of the goodwill that you built up from Sexy Beast. You've got all these people that want to work with you. And it's like, OK, this is your choice. Yeah. So it's based off of a, a screenplay by a fella called Jean-Claude Carrier, who um, wrote the original screenplay. And then a, a fellow called Mi, uh, Milo Adika, who I couldn't find much else about, did some additional writing as did Glazier, presumably as they were filming it. And the elevator pitch is a woman whose husband died 10 years ago is approached by a young boy who claims to be the reincarnated husband. But uh, let's go through it blow by blow. First of all, it opens with a voiceover of who we later learn is the dead husband, Sean, basically saying that he doesn't believe in reincarnation, but if his wife showed up to him in the form of a bird and said, hey, I'm your wife, he would He'd have to it. believe that. He would check it to pieces. Bird, yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, it's actually, it opens as well with a very kind of a, like, it looks like a drone shot. I was going to say that to you. That initial tracking shot is so wobbly, though. It just, like, that's the kind of shot that nowadays would look perfect. It would be CGI corrected, shot with a drone. It would be brilliant. I don't think, mm. it, it can't, I mean, it can't be a drone. It's got to be like a crane. It's got to be like a moving crane shot or something. Something it, like it's that, It's yeah. incredibly wobbly, and it just, it shows how much filmmaking has changed since 2004. I did enjoy it as a shot, though. I thought it was Yeah, beautiful. I thought it was nice. I thought it was nice, but it was just... It's just surprised me when you watch, it's like when you watch helicopter shots from films from the 90s and they're all over the place yeah, and yeah. you realize how much easier it is to do that type of thing now, tech-wise. Yeah, there's actually, I remember there's a, there's a Spanish film, terrible film, came out a few years ago called uh, Ocho, Ocho Apellidos Bascos. Yeah, yeah, sure, and I, I remember that. I ended up like watching it with my girlfriend, and I had like, I had to point out to her that there's loads of drone shots in that film. But <laughs> regardless of what you've just said about how filmmaking has come come on, almost every one of the drone shots at some point gives a <laughs> like just just a very distinct, some like something whacked it. And I was like, I pointed it out to Berlin, once you see it, you just cannot unsee it. And it just, it looks like somebody trying out their new toy on Christmas morning. It's so stupid. I think that was maybe just the early world of drones. Hopefully things are slightly more streamlined these days. Could have been, could have been. Anyway, we see in this, at the end of this tracking shot that is accompanied by Alexandra Desplat's oddly Danny Elfman-like score. It's very magical uh, and mystical. Yes, it is. It is. Mischievous. Um, and and considering how, yeah, I think it jars a little with the film sometimes, but in in a way that I liked. I, yeah, I, I, I certainly liked the score. Mm. Anyway, so we see Sean, we presume it's Sean, jogging uh, through the park and then he collapses and dies. Oh, no. The end of yeah. the film. Yeah, that's it. So then uh, next thing we have, it's 10 years later. We, we're, we're not, there's no um, Although, card or in. Yeah. At that moment, the uh, Glazer shows a scene of a child being born. Oh yes, that's right. He's, there's a cut to a child being born at that exact moment, just to just to fuck with us a little mm. bit more. Now we come to ten years later, and Danny Houston <laughs> is giving the most pathetic speech I've ever seen. I watched this uh, with uh, my girlfriend, and he, what Danny Houston says is, he announces, "So I asked Anna out, and she said no." 
And she kept saying no. And she said no a lot of times. And then a few <laughs> years later, she said yes. And then I asked her to marry me. And I asked her a lot of times. And then about two weeks ago, I got a maybe. And then today, I got a yes. And Belen turned to me and said, what a fucking loser. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is kind of what he's painted as in this film, Danny Houston. Just a, an uncomfortable in his... He feels like a, a case of Hollywood nepotism, like as an actor... There was a period in the early 2000s when it felt like he was in everything, just smiling away with his big smarmy face. And he is a good actor, but I, I, just, mm. I always felt like Hollywood was trying to force him on us just because of his, his family connections. There's a lot of that going on around, first of all. And second of all, I mean, he, I think the deal he's made in exchange for that is he plays exclusively <laughs> arseholes. Yes, he's very good at it. L- to be fair to him. Yeah, but I try and think of a film that you like him in, you know what I mean? He's an arsehole. I, I can only think of him as bad guys and smarmy types. Les, I'm going to give you a read down through of who, who we've got him playing. I remember him in Wonder Woman as like the German... Yeah, he's the arsehole in Wonder German Woman. arsehole. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he's the arsehole in the Constant, Constant Gardener. Gardener. He's an arsehole, that's accurate. Children of Men? Children? I don't know. Nigel, yeah. who's that? <laughs> I bet he's an arsehole. <laughs> He played, he played uh, Orson Welles, uh, a famous arsehole. Fat arsehole. Yeah, exactly. He's uh, striker the in uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine. Well, we arsehole. know the reason uh, Ridley Scott's Robin Hood film pl- uh, failed is because he had fucking Danny Houston playing King Richard. Nobody's going to buy that. Danny Houston's an arsehole. Yeah, he shouldn't be playing Richard the Lionheart. He should be the sheriff of Nottingham. Anyway, that, Danny Houston's an arsehole and he's an arsehole in birth. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So sure he's, a, sure he's a lovely uh, guy. We see a sequence of events that could have easily just been inserted after the edit to try and make the film makes a bit more sense, I feel, because it's just it's odd uh, and it's unforgettable. And it's the one thing that stops you believing the ploy of the film. So we see uh, Clifford, played by Peter Stormare, who we later learn to have been Sean's best man at his wedding, arrive at the party with his with his missus, Clara, who excuses herself briefly and then buggers off into the park and seems to bury something. And we just about see a shot of a young boy, I don't know, there's no other way to put him, who seems to be following Clara with his eyes and then follows her to the park and then that's it. That's all we get of that incident. But we know that that's pretty much going to be plot central, don't we? Yeah from just the way that's portrayed. Anyway, engagement party moves along. Clifford gets introduced to Joseph, and we can kind of tell that Clifford is from Anna's past somewhat. It's over the next few minutes and over the next couple of nights that we get to see that basically they all live in Anna's mother's house, and that Anna's mother seems to be old New York rich played by Lauren Bacall yeah it's Lauren Bacall isn't it I have to say if ever there's just an example of just pure star power it's Lauren Bacall in this because she's got a barely anything role but you're just like that lady's important yeah she has gravitas the next night or well what would seem to be the next night at a party for Anna's mother as played by Lauren Bacall there sneaks into the apartment a young boy the same boy who followed Clara. Now, how easy he sneaks into this big apartment is 
qu- questionable, but the way it's shot, I kind of believe it. I think if you're a young boy, you can go where you want. He sneaks in anyway, and a young a young white boy sneaks into the room where the birthday cake's being paraded around, and it's all dark in there. And then by the time he turns on the, they turn on the light after the candles have been blown out, and he's just there standing there now. I think the family underreacts to his presence <laughs> yes. there. They're like, oh, it's a little boy. Oh. Yeah, because in my family, yeah, I bel- we would have lost our shit. <laughs> we would have absolutely lost our Kill minds. It. He says he needs to have a conversation with Anna. And then Anna takes him into the other room. And he says that he is her dead husband, dead of 10 years, reincarnated as this little boy and that he's not a little boy he is her husband sean now we get this is the first dose we get of what's the film's greatest strength for me anyway is just this little boy fucking brilliant cameron bright oh yeah he's amazing isn't he so good he's supernaturally good at just delivering dialogue in this matter of fact way yeah and like i mean he stands like an adult yeah. or so, like or walks around like a man like how intimidating he turns out to yeah. be to danny houston in the plot is totally believable <laughs> just based on his performance alone yeah i'm laughing thinking about the scene later where they fight she kind of dismisses him and then anna receives a letter from him the next day warning him just not to marry joseph that's all it says is don't marry joseph and then kind of starts this odd cat and mouse game trying to figure out if he is actually sean now i'm gonna ask you where were you at this point in the plot did you believe it i assume i think with that image the glazer inserts early on of the birth i just kind of took it at face value even though i don't believe in reincarnation at all i just assumed that in this universe he is actually reincarnated. And even as the film progresses, I think it is supposed to be... It's not supposed to be as clear-cut. Supposed, there's supposed to be a kind of grey area, despite the evidence that's presented. Yeah, but... That, okay, so this is what I would have been leading up to. I think that's what Glazier is going for. I think he pur- was purposely leaving the pieces there, and he is trying to see how much he can get you to believe before yeah. the end of the film when he reveals it. Uh, because the ending in the film, and we will get to it, it like more directly, but the end, people chewed it up as a cop-out ending. But I, I, I think that's the point. I think that's exactly what he wanted to chuck yeah, in. Yeah, I have cop more to out say ending. by that when we get to it. Because of course it was. Anyway, yeah. So we kind of see clips into the boy's life. He seems to live a life half in the suburbs and half in this building. The doorman knows him. And then we later learn that his father lives in the building. And then he is very explicitly warned to leave Anna alone. And then as they're walking away, Anna sees Sean just basically collapse, like faint as she's going down in the elevator. And that seems to have a really profound effect on her. And she, I think it's at this point that she begins to believe that it's actually him. At this point, she she starts getting randy for a young boy. I just want yes. to <laughs> I just want to point out that Sean's dad is Buffalo Bill, which is nice that he's like stop pestering the nice lady or it gets the hose again. Is that Buffalo Bill? Yeah, Ted, That's Levine, Ted Levine, the legend himself. Yeah. And his mom, wow. his mom is Cara Seymour from Adaptation. It's nice to see her doing stuff. Uh, have you ever heard this the old story that basically Ted Levine was so good in Buffalo Bill he found it difficult to get work for years? Oh, wait, was that that great big fat lady? 
wish I, I can't do proper I'm sure you're a great big fat person. I can't do it. I wish I could do it better. <laughs> she she was a big girl, yes. Were, were she a great big fat person? <laughs> that's nice. <laughs> I hope that's how you speak in general throughout your life. It's so, it's so funny. I mean, honestly, I've seen that film. Just, I, it's one of those I've I've clocked up a lot of watches, and that I find it creepy. I find it brilliant. I find it amazing. I want to watch film it again. N- never fails to make me laugh my ass off. Yeah. I'll tell you something, Andy. You wouldn't believe it, but of all the films, I would strongly advise people to t- get. If you ever see the opportunity, get the opportunity to see that on a big screen, do. Mm. Because it just, it changes. It completely morphs the film. Have you ever seen it on the big screen? I mean, you're a million years old. I was so too, no, I was too young to see it when it came out. Because I remember when it first came out, Anthony Hopkins went to some screenings and just stood by the door. And then was like, did you enjoy the film? <laughs> oh, my God. It's, it's ap- like, wow. That's another film for another day. Maybe it's do a rewatch and we could talk about it someday on this. But yeah, we'll just anyway. need to find something that pairs with it and we'll give it a bash. So he is told explicitly to stay away from, uh, from Anna, but he leaves her a voice message saying to meet her by the bridge. You know which one. And mm-hmm. she goes to the bridge where her husband died. And um, at that point, they're moved onto the stage of the film where they're basically just going to play this game and try and test him in whatever way they can to see is he actually Sean and he volunteers to be tested on all these details. So next uh, up is Anna's brother, who who is going to ask Sean a load of questions at that point. We're still in Sean's actual house in the suburbs. And he goes there, asks him a lot of questions. He seems to get most of them right. They decide the next thing to do is to kind of, I don't know, how would you put it, therapeutically try and get him to realize that he is not her husband by having him move into the flat. Nicole Kidman refers to it as breaking the spell of his obsession. But at the same time, you know, we kind of get the feeling that she's into... Yeah, she just she's wants, into, to, she wants to straight up bone this 10-year-old. Something like she's that. pummel this young boy. Yeah, so anyway, he record, like he gets to move into this house and he's able to identify the different parts. He's able to say that this is my desk, this is where I used to work, etc. But everybody else just kind of remains uh, pretty doubtful and particular some people just react without and out contempt Anna's sister Laura for example who's who's pregnant and that's actually one one of the more like interesting responses that Sean gives is when Anna's brother or rather Anna's brother-in-law says that they have a baby on the way and Sean responds oh I thought Laura couldn't get pregnant which I thought was very interesting mm. he also says stuff like we did it on the green sofa in such and such a one's house like I mean they really go for it like that. Anyway, Anna misses a date with her fiancé to spend time with Sean. Surely. But she see, she tries to placate him and she says, we're going to sit in on this music, the wedding music audition. God, the super rich of New York, huh? They're all just sitting around watching a, a string quartet in order to... Um, to yeah, try and break nice. this, in order to try and break the spell further, yeah, they're going to sit around and listen to wedding music. But as they're there, Sean is sat behind Joseph <laughs> and starts kicking the back of his chair, which eventually just causes Joseph to explode and like physically attack Sean. Now, this sets up for me what what is much more jarring about the ending of the film, which we'll get to again. But it's like at the one thing that I thought that 
was an interesting reveal here is regardless of what happens, the man Nicole Kidman has chosen, Joseph, just reveals himself to just be an absolute... <laughs> an absolute cock. <laughs> just, yeah, just a total... Like, if ever there was a... Because te- I, I, <laughs> I always find a funny trope to be super jealous boyfriends. I think super jealous boyfriends are funny because it's just like, there's a show of a strength going into it, but at the same time, every bit of strength that they put into it just makes them look like weaker men it's just such a funny setup but actually during the week i listened to an interview with uh, an interview with fka twigs mm. uh, talking about her abusive relationship with shia LaBeouf, and i was like oh this kind of thing that i find funny is the start of most abusive relationships so maybe i better revise my opinion on it this is anyway, why you hire danny houston because he can perfectly present that like he's angry he wants to beat up a child <laughs> It's clear yeah. that he is a toxic individual. He pushes a piano at him, which is a very <laughs> funny part. Of he tries to block the doorway with the piano so that he no one can get past while he beats the shit out of a young boy. Oh, wait a minute! We, uh, I've, I've dusted over the um, the bath scene. I believe happened have before you? this. Hey, have they been to the opera at this point as well? Because. Or is that have later to, on? When they go to the, uh, to the opera together. The only reason I mentioned the opera is because it, there's a two-minute long scene of just Kidman's face. Yeah, well, they're like... Which uh, is but, slightly uh, gratuitous in a 90-minute film. Fair play to Glazer for getting us getting us uh, in in 90 minutes. But two of those minutes are just watching Nicole Kidman's face at the opera. I'll tell you what, though. Nicole Kidman is terrific in this as well. I would say she's great in both films, I think. She shows that she's a real actress and not a, just a movie star. I think she really had to, she had to prove herself to get this, to get this role, uh, specifically mm. Birth. I think like Glazer wanted, he was originally going to go with someone less recognizable, and she really needed to prove that she was serious, serious, super serial about the role. But she's, I think she's absolutely brilliant yeah, in this. Definitely. Um, yeah, and like uh, apparently Lauren Bacall slagged her off in the press for the movie. Which what isn't very nice. What a bitch! She should be supporting Indeed. the sisterhood. But the one thing about Nicole Kidman, she's a she's a believable beast, a believable pedo. Yes, well, which actually is how this ends. So then, after Danny Houston reveals himself to be a giant cock and is packing his bags, Anna takes Sean down and gives him a big smooch, mm-hmm. which must have been nice for the boy. To be fair, highlight because, of his and life. Yes, probably. I. I I think we did uh, dust over it because, uh, yeah, I think actually before the scene where Danny Houston reveals himself to be a cock, he's also at the door listening at, as his fiance takes a bath with a young boy, which is just like, again, with stuff like this, the score, the Desplat score, just the scene itself has so so much potential to be dark and the music kind of plays it off as this sort of magical little thing <laughs> where they're having a little bath together. He has a, there's, bananas. There's one recurring theme throughout that goes that builds a sense of energy. But yeah, it's not yeah. exactly dark. It's like play with my boy penis. Yeah, actually, that was one issue I had is that the boy penis is kind of teased at but never explicitly <laughs> revealed i can imagine that must have been very frustrating for you seeing this young boy in his tight well exactly yeah. and then they cut away. when he put, i like he takes off the pants <laughs> and the tidy whities are there i'm like yes here we go here we boy go penis. here we go 
Apparently, <laughs> the, I mean, the scene was clearly very, very controversial, but Glazer, Glazer, <laughs> Glazer went to great lengths to point out that they were never naked. They're wearing like flesh bodysuits. They were never in the same shots at the same time and all this type of thing. There's a much more gross scene in Destroyer than this, but we'll get to that. Anna, by giving him a smooch uh, at that point, we, like he's, she's completely convinced she's won over, apparently. So then she asks Clara and Clifford, Clifford having been his best man, to meet him and kind of vet him, so to speak. So Clifford comes in and Sean immediately runs up and gives him a hug in a very childish way, that, and uh, at which point Clifford says yeah that's that's that, that's instantly how he knows that's not sean now it's never kind of revealed that clifford knew the full truth but i suppose you can gauge off of that reaction that he did that he actually knew what the real story was because then clara writes down her address on sean's hand uh, in the bathroom as she takes him into the bathroom, and then she tells him to come and, and meet her. He parallel goes to meet visit. her. Yeah, parallel visit. And then it's kind of... Well, I don't fully understand what it was that happened. Okay. Sean is just out right. here crushing it. Yeah, absolutely. He's got multiple um, middle-aged ladies. Yeah, indeed. They all want a, a slice of that little boy penis. Little boy mm. penis, which I was not allowed to view, but Very I can only Very much uh, delicacy in... Uh, New York City. Hi, New York City. Yeah, this is, these are the these are the people. These are the elites that uh, QAnon was talking mm, about. Absolutely. So he goes along to Clara's house, and it's it's revealed that what we saw her bury was going to be uh, just a fuck you engagement gift, and it was all the love letters that Anna had written to Sean. No, maybe because he gave her unopened love letters. But aren't they Sean's letters to Clara? Are they? Wouldn't that make more sense? Why would they be Anna's well, why, letters? Why, but why did he give the letters to Clara unopened? That's a specific point. Were they that unopened? They were, they had, yeah, that they had not been opened. Oh, I guess. So he just didn't give a fuck. Yes, I think that... Is that the point? He, it, he just didn't care. The gift was from Sean, his way to prove to Clara that he um, loved her and not Anna. Uh, but okay. he would not leave her. There so that's That makes more sense. So, Clara had been planning to give them to Anna on the night she was engaged, getting engaged to Dildo Joseph. But that's a mass. That's well, what a brilliant fuck you. <laughs> Ten yeah, years yeah, yeah, later, way to hold on ab- to that. She abandoned the ship at the laugh at the last point, and that is that. It seems is where like it's never explicitly stated, but we figure that Sean got the letters, read them, and basically figured he was Sean. So I don't think it's a con. I think he was maybe oddly brainwashed by the letters or something like that. Or, yeah, I mean, the kid is clearly a genius also. Mm. I mean, he's Why do you out, say that? Well, because he's, I mean, as I say, he's out here crushing. He's got these two ladies ready to go to town <laughs> on him, and he's just manipulating them for his own little purposes. Oh, yeah, and Clara <laughs> says... This is one of the him, times I laughed out loud in the film. <laughs> Clara says to him that she would have found a way to make it work. She said, "Yeah, she she says to Sean, he's like, I'm I'm actually slightly disappointed that you're not the reincarnation because I totally would have banged you." <laughs> is what she says in in so many words. Pretty much, yeah, it's mad. She was like, anyway. I think she says something like, "I would have I would have explored that." 
Yeah, that's what she <laughs> says. That's it. That's it. My that's o- my other favorite moment is coming up just after is when Kidman goes to Danny Houston and says to, says to him, you know, she's like on her knees and she says to him, "It wasn't my fault. Everyone everyone would have done the same thing in my position." <laughs> yeah. Just the fact that he can get past that really spells out something <laughs> yeah. more about Joseph. Like it's no, that's the point. Like leave with your pride intact, for God's sake. You know what I mean? They get married. It's revealed, and um, Sean writes her a big long letter apologizing because f- he says he's figured out that he's not actually Sean. But then uh, we see at their wedding, Anna. I mean, just legs it into the sea. Really, I mean, she's very, very confused and broken up by the whole thing. And yeah nothing's ever nothing's really quite resolved with it now i just thought in general this film is effing bananas it makes it makes a lot of sense to me that this is a guy who wrote scripts for louis bunuel because it's the kind of thing that bunuel would have dealt with it's magic but not magic it's just crazy this my understanding Um, of the of the origin process was that glazer wanted to make a film about eternal love and so he went to carrier because he knew carrier was an expert uh given mm. his filmography but my main takeaway from the film ultimately is like it's fine but i just don't care enough about it i just don't think there's enough there to really make it feel relevant and it won't ever really live with me i feel like you know like glazer is obviously an excellent visual storyteller and he marries music and image really Mm. really well but at the end of the day i just i don't care enough about this film which is a shame because i really like jonathan glazer i kind of on the same page as you but i instantly felt while i was watching it and now this is helped out by its 90 minute runtime mm. and i was i felt i would watch this again just to watch it with somebody for the first time and see what the <laughs> f they thought of it you know and I what, just, what would you would I, you when when they get to the the scene of the boy in the bathtub you would just be kind of like leaning over and touching their leg is that what you would do that's it yeah exactly right. um interesting uh, yeah, just raise their hunger for little boy penis and then show them my own. <laughs> and then you just, you, they would look, they turn their head and you have your eyebrow cocked in their direction. <laughs> and, your, and your fly's undone. Yeah, I, and I the bath starts going. Visualize this, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I would like to see what other people think of it because it is just a, it's a crazy film. It's, a, oh yeah, and what do you think of the quote-unquote cop-out ending? I think, I mean, it's fine. Uh, you can see what you want i think you can see whatever you want from it you can interpret it however you believe if you if you're into reincarnation he's reincarnated if you think sean is a super genius who can interpret as a 10 year old all of this information from a series of letters and then use it in conversation with adults then fine then there's that it is what it is but i think the most interesting point is how nicole kidman is so heavily affected running into the sea it's her mm. mental it's her mental state that's the, the 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 key point and probably the most interesting thing is like the whole experience has just broken her the guardian said it was a a film that time forgot just because, because it's not weighty enough i think is the problem mm. yeah there's just not enough to it it just for me watching something like this i'm like okay that's great that you've done this but with the resources with the resources that Glazer had and the goodwill that I mentioned, I mean, this cost twenty million dollars. I, I Jesus, it's not worth twenty million dollars. I'm sorry, and no, it made where did it made twenty three point nine. I imagine that Kidman got a nice payday. Mm. Yeah, because it's mostly shot in the same apartment. Right. I mean, shooting in New York is not cheap, obviously, but 
still. I mean, assuming it was shot in New York. I mean, some of the exteriors definitely is shot in Central Park and some of the other uh, exterior shots are definitely New York. Certainly could not be accused of being boring. I'd lead you into Destroyer. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, well, I don't have a segue. No, that's fine. This segue is that Nicole Kidman's career, many years later, led her to Destroyer. Destroyer nice. is a 2018 American neo-noir crime drama film directed by Karen Kusama and written by Phil Hay and Matt Manfredi. Phil Hay and Karen Kusama are husband and wife. The film stars oh. Nicole Kidman as a police officer who takes revenge against members of a gang years after an undercover case was blown. Episode 21, and this is the first film directed by a woman. I mean... It's about bloody time. Well, just to let you behind the scenes a little, listeners, every week my original film pick is something produced by a woman or person of color, and every week Donica <laughs> forces me to change my choice to a film directed by a white man, while I That's will right. remain silent no longer. That's right, and this is the reason I keep going old. I keep going to mm. old films back in the days when only white men were allowed direct cinema. And this is yes. why you suggested Birth of a Nation for next week. And it's going to win. Uh, seriously, I'm gonna, though, I'm, to be honest, even if it doesn't win, I'm, I'm probably going to watch it at least twice. Okay, fair play. Seriously, though, did we talk about you were never really here in a discarded pilot episode? Hmm. I don't. Did oh, we, yes, did we, we did, did actually. We? Yeah, we did. I think that was the first one we did. Yeah, actually. because I mean, um, that's one of my favorite films of all time. Lynn, Lynn Ramsey is probably my favorite working director. I was going to... Because I actually I, like women. To, <laughs> well, I, I actually had Morvern Keller as uh, yeah. one of the uh, reaction films if I hadn't been winning all the time. Yeah, damn. I time. really like Morvern Keller as well. I want to rewatch that. Anyway, so Destroyer is Kusama's fifth feature. She did Girl Fight in 2000, the much derided uh, Eon Flux in 2005. The Diablo Cody pen Jennifer's Body in 2009 and her well-received horror film The Invitation in 2015. I have seen none of these. Have you seen any oh, wow. of them? I think I have seen all of them. Oh, wow. Jesus. Yes, I have. I've seen all of them. What's uh, the best, them. The best of the films you just named there, in my opinion, is The Invitation. The Invitation mm -hmm. is a great little film. Um, go in blind. Okay. Should I not open my eyes during it? Should I no, stab just, myself with a pen in, in each eyeball before watching it? Is that what you mean? It's, I'm very literal. I mean, it's it's basically an audio book, yeah. Hmm. Well, that's good. No, no, no. I just mean just just uh, yeah. don't look up anything about I, it. I know it's a horror it, film fine. and it involves an mm. invitation. That's it. That's all you need to know. Perfect. Uh, the only thing I'm really familiar with from Kusama is her episode of The Outsider, the Stephen King HBO series. I think her Which was very good. Yeah, her episode was one of the stronger ones, but ultimately the series was a little underwhelming, I felt. Well, I felt After starting much, very good, uh, very well. Well, I, yeah, yeah, it's, it's uh, standard uh, Stephen King fare in that regard. Sorry for saying that, Stephen King, I love you. But, um, and he's a big, yeah, just, he listens uh, to this, so. Not, not great at sticking the owl landings. Have you kept up with The Stand? No, sir, but I will eventually watch it. God, it's dull, but I know I'm going to finish it, yeah. <laughs> Destroyer was a box office disappointment, grossing $5.6 million on a 9 to $12.4 million budget. At the yeah. 76th Golden Globe Awards, Kidman was nominated for Best Actress in a Motion Picture Drama, losing to a lady mentioned in last week's episode. Um, tw what, what year was this, 2019? Something like that, yeah. I have no idea. A lady who, uh, who give me a hint. Okay, she. I'll tell you the. I'll tell you the name of the character because I haven't seen the film. But uh, the character was called Joan Castleman, 
Uh, I've seen it. She's, it's it, it's Glenn Close. There we go. With the in that film with Jonathan Price, Captain Glenn Close, off of the Shield. God, she's awesome in the Shield. What was your the wife? That's the name of the film. Okay. Yes, sorry. Go You're on. Welcome. Yes. <laughs> trying to think of it. <laughs> the film starts with mm. Detective Erin Bell, played by Nicole Kidman, sitting in her car under a bridge before getting out and shuffling over to a crime scene. What was your reaction to seeing Kidman's face in this film? Um, I, well, I don't know. I mean, I remember seeing it quite a lot in the promotion for it at the time. Uh, I was the one who suggested this. I had been watching it. When I, the, the, my pervading image of uh, seeing this, the way I had this film in my head, is just an image of Nicole Kidman looking all grim with a machine gun. And I thought, yeah, I'm there. That looks great. So, yeah, I wasn't too surprised by her her look or her delivery of the character. I feel like she nails the character, but at times mm. the makeup is a little too much, almost uncanny valley. But the way she shuffles around, it's clear that she absolutely inhabits this character. Yes, I, I agree. But supposedly she was suffering from flu during part of the filming and could barely stand at points, which she used to fuel her performance. Yeah, I mean, she just, yeah, she looks half dead throughout to be fair the way she moves <laughs> she just has this horrible shuffle it's completely different to her mannerisms and body language in any other film which is impressive this is this is a grim movie isn't it it's uh it's not the nicest i knew nothing about it before going into it i had no idea if she was a cop a criminal i literally had, i thought because you compared it to Charlize theron I thought that meant that she was like a serial killer. I didn't realize that. <laughs> I didn't realize that you just meant like she looked rough. I I, I read in, more into it. I really take whatever podcast, you say yeah. at the end of the episode leading into the next one. That completely, uh, like that influences my viewing of the film. So I'm like, okay, this so is this happened, is Monster this is, 2 starring Nicole Kidman. This is, this is uh, yeah, this is, has happened a few different times now. You yeah. thought that there was going to be a crying game type reveal yep. in the year of living dangerously. You are, you, and you, and you, uh, you spoiled Zardoz. That was the other one. There's no spoiling Zardos. No, it's a work of art. Bell, Detective Bell, shuffles <laughs> shuffles like the penguin over to the crime scene. That's uh, fair. We learn a few things uh, at the scene. First, Bell is a mess. She seems to be an alcoholic. Her colleagues mm. feel pretty sorry for her. The victim is a white male with gunshot wounds. He's got three circles tattooed on his neck because he's cool. And there's a $100 bill with dye on it next to him. And the murder weapon, a small revolver with a red grip. Mm, will these things come into play later? Who knows? Mm -hmm. Who knows? In the next scene, we see Belle at the police station where she has received a dye-stained $100 bill in the mail. When she heads out in her car, we see that she used to have a three-circle tattoo on her neck. She used to be cool, but has since had it removed. She drives over to the FBI and meets her old handler. It is revealed that she was an undercover agent on a job that went bad. She explains to her former colleague that Silas, her undercover target, is back on the scene. Da, da, da. Mm. Charles Manson-like figure played by Toby Cabell. I love Toby Cabell. Whenever I want to say it's Toby Cabell, but I like Toby Cabell. Has is a much better pronunciation than Cabell. Cabell. I think it sounds more sophisticated yeah. like that. Stringer Cabell. Uh, I think he's terrific in everything I see him in. So I think he's terrific in everything, but I feel like he was miscast here. Or else, don't put that fucking stupid wig on his head. Here's what I think. I think he is probably too pretty for this film. Yeah, he's Just, supposed to uh, be a fucking crackhead. 
Yeah, I do. That's that's what I would say. But I I feel he's convincing in the role. His accent but, yeah. is a bit. His accent's a, a, a tad dodgy, but uh, he's always extremely watchable. He's so charismatic, always. Mm. And he makes a great What's, monkey. Yeah, that's true. What's quite interesting is that when Nicole Kidman was doing Birth, he was making his film debut in Shane Meadows' Dead Man's Shoes. Oh, yeah, which uh, he's uh, very memorable. Brilliant. In. That's mm. a great film. I'd love to rewatch that. And it's about 90 minutes as well. It's the correct running It's less. Time. I think it's, it's 80, 40, yeah, 80, 84 minutes or something. I've watched uh, just just snippets of that so many times, of just the scenes with Paddy Considine being a <laughs> mentalist. I the number of times. Do you know, just last week, I actually rewatched the pub scene. What the fuck are you looking at? You, you cunt. You, you cunt. Oh, that is amazing. That is the, perhaps because, the best scene in film history. Yeah, and then... F- Two minutes later, he acts all friendly like it was yeah. just a... <laughs> He's like, I'm oh sorry about God, that. Sorry about that, am- mate. That is amazing. You, you cunt. Oh, God, it's so good. <sighs> at this point in the film, we start getting flashbacks. We see Erin at a bar with her former partner, Chris, played by Sebastian Stan, the lovely Sebastian Stan. Apparently, Stan originally auditioned for the Silas role before Kusama decided he'd be better as Chris. I... Uh, I'm going to disagree mm. there. I think he would have been better as Silas. I agree. Anyway. I agree. I think it would be better having an American as Silas. I think it would just be more believable. I, I do like Toby Kebbell. I've always liked him and everything, but I don't know. He just doesn't, he just doesn't look the part or sound the part. Ben Howard would have been good. Who's that? I feel like I've just made up a name for an actor <laughs> that isn't, isn't right. I think uh, we should have gone uh, for Steve Johnson. I'm gonna throw in a niche uh, reference in there in here for you. The older brother from Alpha Dog. Who's that? Fucking hell. Ben something. I almost paired Alpha Dog with something the other day. I can't remember what it was, but I was going to choose Alpha Dog as a as a companion film. Are you talking about Ben Foster? Ben Foster. There you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Someone like that. That he mm. has that menacing energy. Like he can play that insane. Like mid mid nineties Ed Norton. Right. Someone like that. Mm. Someone who can. Yeah. Someone a bit even slightly more menacing. In the present day, Bell shakes down a local gun dealer and confiscates a bag of weapons, much to his annoyance. At the same time, we see scenes of in the past of Aaron and Chris starting to infiltrate Silas's gang of crackhead bank robbers. One of the members of the gang is a blonde-haired guy called Toby. In the present day, Toby is terminally ill. Oh. Aaron pays him a visit to try to get information to locate Silas. Toby agrees to give up another gang member named Arturo if Aaron agrees to wank him off, which he, <laughs> <laughs> which he duly does, showing a level of commitment to her job that I feel is sadly lacking in the younger generation. <laughs> that go-getter spirit. I don't know how okay I was with that. I got like it just felt like grimness for grimness sake. Like oh what no to be fair, it's like I felt like that about certain things in TV shows in Breaking Bad, like you know uh, but uh, which I eventually got over and appreciated, but for this I just felt like did we have to have that hand job it bit? Adds nothing. What's it supposed to show that she is so desperate to solve this situation that she's willing that she'll to do wank that. off this manky dead a man who's dying. yeah he's falling apart he's like disintegrating it's... in front of us he's terminally ill but in a way that looks like like he's got the plague vic Mackey wouldn't have whacked him off vic Mackey would have found no, a way to get the information two shots to the body one to the one to the head put him down yeah no something like, like that dog. i just thought there was there was no need for her to whack him off it was horrible 
In a flashback, we get to see Silas uh, in his awful wig goading Arturo into playing Russian roulette. Uh, Silas is a bit of a Charles Manson type, as you mentioned. And after Arturo plays Russian roulette, it's revealed that there were three bullets in the chamber. This guy's a madman. I mean, that scene, did it occur to nobody when they were writing it that that there's that way of showing how gnarly a gang leader is could use a bit of a rejigging you know there should be more of a threat i feel like it's just toby kebble sitting there in a chair going like you know what would be cool if you shot mm. yourself in the head i that that just bugged me it's like oh you're gonna oh yeah yeah you oh there's Maybe bullets in the chamber, maybe there isn't. We're all living on the edge. I just thought, ah, oh, come on, lads. There's not enough of a you threat. Know? He needs to... That's the problem. You don't see... The Silas character is introduced in a way that it's supposed to be... Like, is mentioned in films. Like, you see typically in films, they mention this character, they build him up, and everyone's going, mm. oh, Silas. Silas is back. Silas is here. And then you reveal him, and he's supposed to be like a total badass that is supposed to be extremely threatening. But yeah, Toby like, Kebbell in about a the wanky film, wig uh, is just I mean, not Say what that. you want about the film uh, 300, but when Xerxes arrives, he arrives, you know? After a scene of Aaron's 16-year-old daughter Shelby out at a bar with her dickhead boyfriend, Aaron heads over to the Latino church where Arturo's giving legal advice to illegal immigrants. When Arturo sees her, he bolts. Aaron catches up to him and he offers up Petra, Silas's junkie girlfriend. The actor who plays Arturo, Zach Villa, is in a memorable scene in season three of The Expanse. No spoilers. Oh, I haven't. Uh, I know you're not there yet, yet. but you, you'll recognize mm. him. He plays a, sh- a slingshot pilot in a very memorable scene. Mm. He's good. I like him. He's not in a lot of stuff, but I recognized his face. What's his good. name? Zach Villa, or Villa, depending on how oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Spanish he is. I thought he looked like, um, I th- I, when I first saw him, I was thinking, is that Edward Furlong? Is that what Edward Furlong <laughs> looks like? Has his Edward Furlong become a lot more Latino than I remember him being? <laughs> Next, we get to hang out with the coolest man in the whole film, Bradley Whitford, the great Bradley Whitford, looking a little older than his days as Josh on the West Wing. Still instantly Josh, no? Yeah, because does anyone else deliver dialogue like him? He's just the best. At the moment, um, I'm getting big smiles because I have the Wikipedia page for the film open in front of me. And for some reason, the cursor of the mouse landed on the word handjob. And I'm seeing (laughs) the the Wikipedia picture of a handjob. It's quite... it's fairly amazing. Very educational. I'll have to Can learn you put that in the later. show notes, please? I think we can just get people to follow that link. Google wiki handjob and Don't see where it Google takes you. That. Bradley Whitford is a lawyer named DeFranco who for the last 20 years has been helping Silas and Petra launder their money because he's a nice guy. When Erin pulls her gun on him, his minder beats her up until she pukes. Hmm. She goes into the bathroom to clean up, then comes out and pistol whips the security guard before doing the same to DeFranco forcing him to reveal when he makes his weekly drop of laundered money to Petra. See, that was a moment where the film showed me what kind of film we could be watching, and I liked it more. You mean Belle as, like, a badass going in and just beating the fuck out of people? Yeah. Not caring about the consequences. They they were, like, I really feel that this whole film is a deliberate effort to undermine that other sort of film, but in the brief moments where it gives a hint of that (laughs) other sort of film, I want to be watching it, honestly. Because I thought, like, like, in a scene that's coming up, I thought, oh, this is exactly what I'm here for, you know what I mean? It has the energy of something like Point Blank, but Aaron's kind of the baddie. 
and it's far too pensive. It takes mm. its time like nobody's business. Yeah, it doesn't uh, It doesn't deserve to be two hours long. And I think that's probably Karen Kusama's fault for lingering on certain things. Yeah, I, I agree. I was watching it uh, thinking of, actually thinking of, um, you were never really mm. here and yeah. how good Lynn Ramsey is at just weaving things like this together um, in such a short space of time, but telling you so much. You know, well, well I, I, I have written here, Kusama's good at capturing beautiful images. I don't think she has the confidence to really pull this film off in the way that someone like Lynn Ramsey might have. Oh, snap. Bell has the information from DeFranco. Uh, after witnessing the drop, Aaron follows Petra to a meeting with Silas and other new gang members. Just before they begin robbing a bank, Aaron grabs her machine gun. This was the image that you were looking forward to. She grabs her machine gun from her car and is joined by two uniformed officers as they bust open the bank doors and interrupt the raid. There is a shootout. What did you think of the shootout? I, I thought it was good. Yeah, I thought I it was very solid, but I don't know mm. if it's worthy of a video on uh, the, that channel I've been watching. <laughs> it was good, um, but once again, it kind of suffered from... It, it, it immediately dropped off the pace. The majority mm. of the gang members escape. Aaron pursues Petra on foot to a local cafe. They fight with Aaron receiving some fairly nasty hits to the stomach. With Petra subdued, Aaron chucks her in the boot of her car and drives her off to Petra's house. In a flashback scene, Aaron and Chris do some shagging. Aaron gets a pregnancy test, which comes back positive, revealing that Chris is the father of Aaron's daughter, Shelby. Oh no, we don't care. <laughs> It's also revealed that Erin took a bag of cash from the bank robbery when she was undercover. She plans to give it to her ex-husband so that he can take Shelby away from the big bad city. When she goes to check on the cash, she finds that the majority of the notes are covered in dye from an exploded dye pack. She salvages all the cash she can, around $11,000, to pay Shelby's dickhead boyfriend to leave her alone forever. There is a sense around all these scenes that Erin is getting her affairs in order and may not live mm. happily ever after. Which, I mean, considering she looks like a gargoyle is... I mean, her face probably says a lot of this information as well. So, at this point, we finally get the flashback to the bank heist. Silas instructs the tellers not to include any dye packs in the bags of cash. As he walks out the bank, a purple dye pack explodes. He walks back in to execute the lying bank employee. Chris, unable to let this happen, runs into the bank, revealing that he's FBI. And in a completely pathetic... <laughs> attempt yeah. to take down silas gets gunned to death in about no. one second now that is a sequence that definitely would not pass your youtube channel's sh test no in a video game you would lose i mean the way he approaches he's that. supposed to be fbi yeah he says so he screams it fbi uh, i don't know how to use this gun also Shoot yourself um, also he definitely should not have yelled fbi he should have just shot, shot. silas in exactly. the knee yeah or in the head, in, in the wig. He's got plenty of padding there. He'd be fine. <laughs> uh, okay. Silas then executes the bank clerk. Aaron drives off with Toby, the future wanky. Toby thinking he's Toby in the van, imagining 20 years in the future, <laughs> lying on his deathbed, dying of, of cancer while she wanks him off. That's what he's thinking of. But, she, but Aaron crashes the van and uh, she pulls a bag of cash out and stashes it in a dumpster for the future in the present day Erin says goodbye to Shelby and apologizes for being a massive fuck up uh, she also reveals that she was guilty for the deaths of a number of people including Shelby's father Chris Erin goes out to the location where the film starts and meets Silas looking 
like Toby Kebble, now that he's taken his wig off. Almost immediately, she shoots him to death, dropping the gun with the red grip that we saw at the start of the film. Big twist reveal, the start of the film is actually the end. Did this narrative device serve any real purpose? Maybe, like, poetic in terms of it being cyclical and her being trapped in, in this kind of narrative for years. But one thing I'm wondering is, who sent her the bill? He did. Silas said, I did it. He said, you got my message because he wanted her to know that he was back for some reason. What? Why? Yeah. To fuck, I don't know. To, to kill him. <laughs> to, to, to set in motion a chain of events that would inevitably lead to his demise. And so that mm. we could have a two hour film. My bigger question is, I haven't rewatched, I haven't gone back to rewatch this film, nor will I ever. But yeah. why the fuck does she turn up at the, at the arms dealer? Because we're, we're, we're supposed to believe that it's because she's searching for the murder weapon from, mm. from the original scene. But clearly ah, going point, to the yeah. gun dealer occurred before that. So she was just going to the gun dealer for another thing? Or she was bullshitting him to get a bag because of she knew she was going to eventually... Was that the thing that she, she knew she was going to have to kill Silas? So she started putting these... But then who cares? She knew she was going to die. Doesn't make Maybe. sense. There's the bones of something I could really enjoy here, but some failures in casting, uh, the script, and mm. ult- ultimately, I think, I think just I don't know. Maybe her, uh, maybe um, Kusama's skill set is just different to what this film would demand, but it doesn't quite work on the level it could. The elevator pitch for this film, I'm totally in, and I would have, mm. I was predicting I would enjoy this a lot more than I did, but I found it to be which this is almost the worst thing you can say about a film, but I found it to be boring. I didn't find it boring. I was on board with what was happening, but the problem was as it progressed, I just felt like, oh, I was hoping for more. On on, mm. on a scene-by-scene basis, I was kind of going, oh, because I enjoyed it. I like a mystery. I like a thriller. When the original mystery was set up, I was like, oh, this is good. There's a There's a mystery element to this. And the flashback there- narrative structure, I thought, okay, that's fine. But it did just, it was constantly letting me down. But there's certain, like, okay, so the mythos of Silas and his gang is kind of built up uh, in a series of just increasingly grim looking scenes. Um, and I didn't quite buy his mythos. Like, how was no. he controlling all these people? Yeah. Which w- would have been an, would a, an essential, would have been an he essential has, ingredient. He had beautiful hair. He had lovely locks of hair, but they just didn't know mm. it was a wig. That's why. He's like Samson. And, and like there's elements of this that, for example, the scene where she goes to Bradley Whitford, Whitford's house kind of brought to me some of the parts in, I don't know, something like Heat when you're seeing oh, like the mechanics of how a criminal right. underworld kind of yeah, works, yeah, different yeah. things like that, which kind of gra- grabbed me in bits and pieces. But overall, yeah, I did find it quite dull. Whenever it looked like it was going to... This is always a bad sign. Whenever it looked like... It was gonna just um, just descend into insane action sequences. I was like, "Oh, I can be mm. on board with this." You know what I mean? Because it just means that I just could not care less about what's happening. Really, really could not care less. And then also to top it all off, I really, really don't. I don't know why they included that grim ass handjob scene. Really, I just thought that was just like you have why? to give the why audience what they want. The actual ending of the film, the very end of the film, Erin goes back to her car lifts up her shirt to show off her purple flesh. Now, 
I wasn't really sure what this was. I thought it was alcoholism. I didn't realize that she was dying from uh, internal bleeding sustained from several beatings over the course of the film. I did realize that they were setting that up just because that certain kick that Petra gives her, you can really sort of feel it land. Mm. And then when they showed that, I was like, oh, that's what's because she's been limping and stuff as well. Yeah. Ever since then. So I, I did figure that's what they were going for. I felt it was an odd choice. Normally what they do in films like this, I suppose this might be more realistic. Normally what they would do in films like this is that it's revealed that somebody got shot earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And she opens her jacket and there's a yeah, yeah. There's, there's a gunshot wound because we can't we're not really we're not really accustomed to seeing people die just from being punched heavily because we're kind of like, oh, you just got punched up a bit. I think, I guess maybe this element does work because of the reveal that there's a time jump because we're accustomed to seeing her shuffling around. But of course, Mm. because at the very start of the film, you're just kind of like, oh, she's uh, she's an alcoholic. She's obviously in a bad way and that's why she looks like this. But no, it's because she's dying because she's been beaten to death over this period of time. So I guess it does actually make sense when you think about think back on it. You know, people often attack uh, the this the Hollywood uh, the Hollywood system about how if you're a lady and your film fails, you get in movie jail for an awful lot longer than um a man would. But with a film like this, like I'm sorry to like I don't know would they give a man another uh, chance immediately after making this, but I feel like this is a great big misfire, and I think it's got nothing to do with the fact that the director is a lady, because I just think it's I, I I consider it kind of a failure of a film. It's interesting though I was, because I mean it lost money as I mentioned before. It, it only recouped like half its budget, but it did get Nicole Kim in the Golden Globe nomination. So there's enough going on there that. People praised Kidman's performance, even if the overall film was not that great. But I don't think it's going to hold Karen Kusama back. I still feel like she'll get plenty of other, she'll get other opportunities. Well, here's Mark hoping. my words. Mind you, this was all pre-COVID, so who knows what the film industry is going to be uh, after that. Yurt, well, anyway, other, wait, that, let me tell you one other thing one. Of worthy of note. In an interview, Kusama listed two of her favorite directors working today who influenced her. Any ideas who she went for? They are Ooh. relevant to recent conversation. Lynn Ramsey? Nope. You would think so, but no. She chose two um, men. <clears throat> Jonathan Glazier? That is one. And think about another recent uh, director that we have talked about in, a, in, a, in the previous episode. Jack Odiard. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Glazer and ah. Jack Odiard, two influences on her, which is an interesting. Inter- choices. Is interesting. And, this, and, and that's totally random. You, yeah, yeah, you had no idea about that, right? No, no. That is. So uh, there you go. That's on fit. our Wikipedia. I take that as a good omen for the future of this podcast, personally, Andy. Yeah, right. Absolutely. We're on the right path. That's mad, isn't it? It is insane. I, I mean, that's pretty strange. Yeah, all right, I'll take it. <laughs> and and starting from later today, it's going to say on her Wikipedia page, she's a big fan of the Call It Friendo podcast. <laughs> her favorite film is Zardoz, that's what it says. But she also enjoyed Chronicles of Riddick. Well, in that case, fuck her. Do you have a coin? Um, what are you bringing to the table? Oh, it's a penny, which are notoriously difficult to oh, flip. Oh, do you well, have nothing I'll, bigger? I'll no, I have nothing bigger. The penny is very much the boy penis of coins. <laughs> Which is why I've got ten Difficult of them in to my flip. wallet. Yeah. Uh, they I'll, taste we'll, funny. We'll they this. taste metallic. <laughs> 
Okay, so what are you bringing to the table well, for the next, this week? For the next time round, I decided to opt for something new, a film from 2021. Did you know they're still making films? I did. Mm, and this film is Doug Lyman's Locked Down, a romantic comedy heist film written and filmed entirely during the COVID-19 pandemic, which, if you haven't heard of it, is, uh, is like a, a bad flu that's going around. Hold on, this, this is a Doug Lyman film? Mm, I know, that is surprising to hear, but it does, from what I've read about it, it has the feel of people around their houses going like, shall we do something? So really? it might be a big, it might be a pile of shite. Also, by the way, I feel like a film written and filmed entirely during the COVID-19 pandemic is a phrase which may eventually become less impressive, depending on how things progress. All right. So because you went all new, I decided to go all old and I've gone with Bresson. I forget his first name. Um, Robert? I've never seen... Robert Bresson. Robert. I've gone for his his third film. I've never seen any of his films, but oh. I'm going to go for his third one, which um, everyone was a big fan of when it came out. 1951's Diary of a Country Priest. Lovely. All right. Diary of a Country yes. Priest. Diary of a Country Priest. Genius. Sheer genius. Mm-hmm. All right. So I have to offer you on this tiny little coin kind of a church and a one mm, i feel like church is going to be the priest surely and one lockdown 2021 okay i'll go one on that logic okay this is the fucking double-sided coin all right and what's the result and it is one yes fuck you god in your face <laughs> catholic church all right Shall well, I, wait do i, I tell what you could I have oh, yeah your failure so for my companion pick, I, w- I chose something that I know you've seen before, but that I haven't. And sticking with the priest theme, I went with John Michael McDonough's 24 film, Calvary. Ah, so you would okay. have won Calvary. I have yeah, I thought you would, but I, again, I haven't seen it, and I would eventually like to see it. So that ain't right, happening. Well, Goodbye forever. Okay, well, what I have, to, uh, you went to 2021, and this film is labeled as 2019 on Wikipedia, but as far as I know, it's actually only getting a release uh, this year. On oh, I think I know. What the, the wait, Atlantic. wait, wait. Can I just can I guess at one of the stars? Does it star Anthony Mackie? Yes, it does. Nice. I want to watch this. This is Benson and Moorhead's uh, Synchronic. I haven't watched any of their films, but I did go to local blockbuster again just to rent them out and put them in my stockpile. The Endless is absolutely terrific. It's I really, I had really I had never brilliant. heard about them before, but I know that this film is about time travel and I'm a big time travel fan. So I went back and looked up their their film career and I, I, I would I'd like guys, to watch their their stuff. If there's any justice, these guys are headed the direction of Christopher Nolan because they've shown what they can do with just a tiny with budget nine. and it's it's only a mat like and now they're um, going to be making Moon Knight for Marvel, and they'll show what they can do with Ooh, a bigger one, and eventually nice. they'll be able to take their they'll be able to take a kind of a one for them, one for us sensibility to big budget and make things like you know, Inception and Tenet and so forth. So, uh, I I heard reviews for this the other day. It sounds just up my street, and yeah, it also it, I was told uh, like on by both Mark Kermode at the Empire Podcast to look up nothing about the film beforehand. So that's exactly what I intend on doing. 